Good morning. I'm a little bit frazzled. I didn't have my mic on for Sunday school and I don't know how to do it before church. Before we get going here, I want to mention two things. One is that Table Talk devotionals, for whatever reason, got hung up at customs a few weeks ago, and so they sent us a bunch of copies, some back issues and stuff, so there's a bunch of Table Talks sitting on the back there. If you've been taking those, gladly uh, take them. We've got a few months worth sitting there now, uh, including the months that went missing. And I also want to acknowledge a wonderful Christmas program that we had here on Friday evening. So thank you to everyone involved and thank you to Tina for, uh, for doing that. That was terrific. And then I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, 23 through 38. And we're going to look at Jesus' family tree. We're going to do a two-part series uh, over Christmas uh, today and tomorrow. Today we're going to be focusing on the genealogy of Jesus and then uh, next week, or next week, well, I guess Monday, we're going to uh, look at a survey of some of the covenant hero stories that lead to Christ in the Old Testament. So today we're going to look at Jesus' family tree from Luke 3, verses 23 to 38. And once you're there, then I'll ask if you would stand as we read God's word together. And these are the inerrant and infallible words of God. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the same of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannan, the son of Risha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mithat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elochiam, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Metatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Abinadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abram, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarag, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arpaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And may God bless the reading of his word. Dad, are we there yet? Who has heard those words <laughs> on a road trip? For me, it was often met with just a few more corners. And that works especially well if you're on the I-29 going to Texas. Because it is literally just a few more corners. And I have used that line on my own kids as well. And when we look at the genealogy of Jesus, that what you just read sometimes seems like why that level of detail? And there's a few answers for why the Bible includes genealogies. Uh, one is to put these stories in real history to show that this isn't 
uh, a mythical story. This isn't a once upon a time story. These are real, living, breathing human people in history. Jesus was a man. You could touch him. He was real. He was truly a man. So it establishes that. And yet these genealogies are much more than just historical records. They are that. But genealogies in the Bible are a theological statement. They're meant to evoke certain images and help us remember certain stories and to take us through the drama as we trace the seed that Don read about in Genesis 3 this morning. How, how long is this going to take? Are we there yet? How much longer, God? And at Christmas, we have an opportunity to think about how much longer. What was the winding road that got us to this point? And for many of us, we know that Christmas is, in fact, the high point on our Christian calendar. And my hope is this morning, and tomorrow morning, we will have a renewed sense of anticipation for the Savior who was long in his coming. I pray that we will grow in appreciation for what it means that he entered his creation as a man. And I hope we will feel the sense of resolution that happens when Jesus is born, reuniting God and man. And of course, we all know that we celebrate Christmas on December the 25th, and I'm wondering, I'm assuming all of you have heard, well, that's wrong, right? Who's heard that? That's wrong. It's almost certainly wrong. The deeper I got into this, the more certain I am that this is right. <laughs> um, of course, we don't say exactly, and in one sense, it doesn't matter. We've got a date on the calendar. Uh, but the, the rationale for why we got to a December 25th Christmas actually makes biblical and, I would say, theological sense. And again, it won't be dogmatic on this. Uh, so we don't know for certain... But I'll show you the work that got to the establishment of this date for being the traditional date of Christ's birth. The opening chapters of Luke give many indicators that were used by the early church fathers to establish this date on December the 25th, or the Eastern Church that stayed on the old calendar celebrates it on January uh, the 6th. Who's got Ukrainian friends that celebrate Christmas in the New Year? Okay? That's because the Eastern Orthodox Church stayed on the Julian calendar when the Western world moved to the uh, Gregorian calendar. And you can follow along. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 1, I'll just do this kind of as a survey. This isn't the main point, but this is background information. In Luke 1, verse 5, we know that John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was serving in the temple in the division of Abijah. And if you go back into 1 Chronicles 24, 7 through 19, you'll see that King David uh, divided the priests into 24 divisions or 24 uh, orders that took turns serving in this temple for a week at a time. And so each order had two weeks uh, in the temple, one week separated by 24 weeks. And you'll see there that this division of priests of Abijah served in the eighth week, which meant they would have also served in the 32nd week of the year. And in ver uh, Luke 1 verse 10, it draws attention to the fact that all the people were gathered at the temple. So something significant was happening in the temple on one of these two divisions, either on week 8 or on week 32 for the division of Abijah. And this, together with early historical accounts, points to the fact that most likely the time that uh, Zechariah was serving was at Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. Uh, and then Luke 1, 23 and 24 says that Elizabeth conceived immediately after Zechariah got home from his duty. So, assuming the 32nd week, that means fall. And so this puts the conception of John the Baptist in the end of September, September 25th in particular, which makes for his traditional birthday at the end of June. 
And if we can establish John's birthday, it's actually quite easy to figure out Jesus' birthday. Um, because Luke 1, 24 through 27, and then verse 36, indicate that John was six months ahead of Jesus. So that would put Jesus' conception at Passover. So Jesus was conceived by this reckoning on March the 25th, giving him a December 25th birthday, which would put his birthday on Hanukkah, which is a celebration of the recovery of Jerusalem. And we've seen, as we've gone through the other evangelical feast days throughout this last year, Pentecost and Ascension Day and so forth, uh, that redemptive history frequently, God frequently layers one event on top of the other to give added significance through history. So we know that Easter sits on top of the Passover. We know that the resurrection of Jesus sits on top of the Feast of the First Fruits, and we know that Pentecost sits on top of the Feast of Weeks. So it is entirely consistent with the whole biblical pattern uh, that the conception of Jesus would have happened at the Passover, the same time he died. So Jesus is conceived and he dies at the same time on the calendar, at Passover. There's theological significance to that. And then his birth, happening at Hanukkah, would add an additional layer of significance because Hanukkah celebrates the rebirth of Jerusalem and of the temple. So that's whether you follow that math or not, or whether you think that's compelling or not, I kind of do. Uh, that's traditionally at least how the fathers got to a September 25th celebration. Uh, and many of us also frequently hear uh, that these celebrations that we have on the Christian calendar are just repackaged pagan traditions. Who's heard that? It's just a repackaged pagan tradition. Typically it's given to Saturnalia or Sol Invictus. Neither of those really work because Saturnalia is actually on a different day in December. It's not on the 25th. And Sol Invictus didn't start being practiced until the year 274 A.D., which is long, long after the Father settled on a September 25th date. And I'd add this. Even if this was originated as a pagan tradition, I would say that makes it just as important to celebrate on this day as on any other. It would just be evidence of how the kingdom of God plunders the enemy's goods as it goes out. So if this is a pagan holiday, that's wonderful. The kingdom of God has conquered it. Uh, we are in the 20... Uh, 2023rd year of our Lord, Anno Domini, a Domini. Jesus has dominion. If he has plundered Satan's celebrations, wonderful. Celebrate that much more. But I don't think that is the explanation. I think the early accounting makes sense of the biblical data. But nevertheless, we're looking at these men in Jesus' family tree. And if you go way back to the fall of 2022, when we started the Gospel of Matthew, we also did a genealogy there. And these genealogies take a little bit of a different path between Matthew and Luke. Uh, and sometimes that's accounted for, while one genealogy goes to Mary, the other goes to Joseph. That actually doesn't really work very well at all. Uh, what it seems to be more likely is that Matthew's genealogy goes through legal and royal succession, whereas Luke goes through strict genealogical succession. And if you are curious, why would that be different? Then you can go back and listen to that uh, one from fall of 2022. Matthew's family tree doesn't go all the way back. It only starts at Abram. And Luke starts all the way back at Adam. And so he takes our attention all the way back to the very first act of creation, to Adam, the son of God, in verse 38. And by going back to Adam, we are reminded of the divorce that happens between God and man, which Don read about this morning. We're reminded about the silver lining of hope 
that God weaves into his curse on creation in verse 15, which says that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, he says to the serpent. And so our first parents are promised a seed to crush the head of the serpent who enticed them into sin. And for us, it's easy to just zip over, but going back in time, let's go back to the post-fall garden. Okay? There's no memory foam, there's no flush toilets, and there's not a single woman on earth who has ever been pregnant before that you can talk to. And now you're Mary, sleeping on the ground, sleeping on the rocks, and suddenly you don't feel so good. And night after night of rolling around on tree stumps and rocks, and this doesn't feel good. And maybe you wake up and you're vomiting, and nobody knows what's happening. And your husband is there holding your hair back as you lay on the ground vomiting and feeling sick, and there's heartburn, and then something a few weeks later starts moving inside of you. Am I dying? What's happening to me? And this goes on for night after night after night, and weeks turn into months, and I start to look different, and it hurts, and the sickness intensifies, and I can't sleep, and I'm just throwing up all the time. And maybe you start to wonder, is this a living thing inside of me? What if this is another person inside of me? I don't know. I've never seen something like this before. I've never talked to another woman who's gone through anything like this before. This is really strange. And you endure it for nine long months. And that turns into this intense pain. Pain like you have never experienced before. And your body doing things that nobody on earth has seen ever before. And after all this trauma, after all this turmoil, this little human-like thing comes out of you. And it looks like a human. Finally, the seed is here. My Savior finally arrived. Messiah is here. And you can feel the, the hope when our first parents named this seed. I got him from God. Messiah is here. I can't believe it took that long, but here he is, the man of promise. Mashiach is here. And again, days turn into weeks, into months, and nothing has changed. We're still living under the curse. Nothing has changed. And maybe you can imagine how the disappointment might set in of nothing changing. Maybe this isn't the Messiah. Was God lying? What happened? The seed of the woman is here and still the world is groaning under sin. And you can almost feel the despair when this happens the second time. And this little seed is named futility. Vapor. Abel. Despair. And the wait goes on. And it goes on and on. And by Genesis chapter 6, we see these increasing levels of corruption and sin and murder and abnormal, unnatural things like death happening. And it just keeps repeating over and over in the biblical narrative, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. What an unnatural state of events. There's death and there's decay 
and then there's these bizarre people in the land, and everything is getting from bad to worse. And one man commits himself for 60 or 70 years of his life to build a boat as he awaits deliverance from the sin and the chaos and the corruption around him. And he gets off and he starts this process over again. And eventually we have a man by the name of Abram who was promised land and he has promised offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky when he is 75 years old and childless. God's tall tales aren't ending, evidently. I'm 75, I've got no children, and I've got this ironic name that means mighty father. And then, after a much longer wait, where there's still no seed, there's not even one, and I'm promised as many as the sand of the sea and the stars of the heaven, and I don't even have one, God intensifies the joke. He makes him wait for 24 years, and at age 99, with his old wife, God renames him Abraham, the father of multitudes. The father of multitudes. (laughs) I'm 99 years old and I don't have one child. Frankly, by now, everybody should have been hustling enough. I should have great-grandchildren, maybe great-great-grandchildren by now, and I don't even have a son. And God rubs it in and calls me a father of multitudes. Is this a cruel joke? How much longer does an old man have to wait? And his wife laughs when she hears the promise. This isn't going to happen. We all know that. But remarkably, it does. And Isaac shows up, and the drama rolls on. Previously, Abraham had sired an illegitimate son by Hagar. But him and Sarah have waited to nearly 100 years old to have a legitimate son together. Finally, one is here. Waited all these years, and it's one. And then what does God do? Okay, you've got him. Now I need you to take him up to a mountain and kill him. (laughs) What? I waited a hundred years for this? God? You're going to make me kill him? After all this? What's going on? Why are we always up against the odds this badly? But we know how that story goes. and, And Abram's hand is held back. And Isaac turns 20, not married. Turns 30, still single. Turns 40, and he's a 40-year-old bachelor, and dad's thinking, time's a-wasting, buddy. Go find a girl. I want grandkids. Okay? He's 40 years old before a marriage is finally set up. Finally, this 40-year-old bachelor's going to settle down and give me grandkids just to find out his wife is barren. Still not going to happen. And the wait goes on. We're going to have to wait that much longer. And perhaps in a moment of great difficulty in their marriage, uh, Isaac calls out to God and he pleads for Rebecca's womb to be opened. And it is. And she receives twin boys. Esau, this red and hairy twin, comes out first. And Rebecca is told that this older twin will serve the younger one, Jacob. She happens to favor the younger one, maybe because of God's promise, maybe just because of natural affection, I don't know. But contrary to God's stated purposes for the younger one, Isaac favors the older one. He favors Esau. Maybe they like hunting together 
but Isaac has favored the one that God has not given a promise of. And this family gets to be torn apart by favoritism, by deceit, by counter-deceit. And so humanly speaking, this is just one big giant mess that cannot be untangled. There's a civil war brewing between brothers. We have Isaac favoring Esau, despite him not being the one that God called. We have Rebekah favoring Jacob, the one God did call, so it may be obedience in that sense. But how do they go about it? Through deceit, through lies, through tricking an old blind man. It's not a very godly, feminine thing to do, conspiring against your old blind husband to fool him. And Esau also turns out to be a sinner in this event, so you'll notice Isaac and Rebekah and Esau, and Jacob are all the bad guys in this story. There's four bad guys in this story. Everyone in the family. And in a moment of impulse, Esau sells his birthright. In a moment of impulse. And Isaac blesses the wrong son, which in the providence of God just so happens to be the right son. Okay? God is drawing a straight line with a crooked stick. But we have to ask ourselves after all this, is anyone ever going to live up to their calling? Okay, Is anyone going to obey? Because so far, nobody has. So far, everybody's a screw-up. Where's this seed going to come from? Somebody is going to have to obey eventually, right? We need a deliverer eventually. And they wait, and they wait. And so Jacob receives the blessing. Jacob the deceiver. And he fathers the sons who would head the tribes of Israel. And so here we have a rapid expansion of this family line now, from 1 out to 12. And God renames Jacob Israel, and this very clearly makes him a type of Christ figure. Jesus is the true and the final Israel, of course. But in one well-known Bible story, Jacob, the deceiver, spends the night wrestling with God. And God ends the match, how? By touching his hip. And I think this is a reminder of that first promise, that God's people the seed of the woman, are going to have their heel hurt in this transaction. God's people are going to walk with a limp through history. And food customs came out of that reminder that the Jewish people did not eat the sinew on the hip. Okay? This is a reminder God's people are going to limp through history till we get to our head crusher. And I think the fact that God asks Jacob for his name is also interesting. Maybe when Jacob was asked for his name, he flashed back to the time where he lied to his father. And God says, now you're going to tell me your real name. Who are you? And Jacob is forced to be confronted with who he is. And so Jacob in Israel has his own time of struggle waiting as he waits for his wife. Remember, he goes and he's going to find this cute girl and he finds her. And finally, after seven long years of working for her, he gets her. And he wakes up and he finds, all right, so we're going to do this for another seven years. <laughs> okay? God is evidently not in a hurry whatsoever. It always gets prolonged. It always, there's added difficulty everywhere we turn. And finally, Jacob's father-in-law, Laban, deceives him one last time, and Jacob leaves with two sister wives and no shortage of heartache between them. Leah is not loved, but she produces sons. Rachel cannot produce sons, but she is loved. And there's this tension between these sisters as they compete for the love of their husband. 
And while we hear mostly about Joseph, who is in his own way typifying Christ, he is a favored son of his father. He's unjustly betrayed by his brothers. His brothers plan to kill him and then settle on selling him into slavery, into Egypt, much like Christ had to flee into Egypt as a young child to get away from the threat of death. And through this exaltation, he partially fulfills the promise to great-grandpa Abram that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed as the nations flow in for food during a great famine. And so as much as it looks like it's going to be Joseph, it is not Joseph, it is Judah who's going to carry on the pathway as we wait for this seed yet another generation. Judah is also a bitter and corrupt young man. And he comes to picture the seed in his own way. When Jacob is scared of losing his firstborn son, Reuben, Judah offers his life as a ransom, as a substitute for his older brother. And once in Egypt, he also acts as the covenantal representative of the family. He offers his life for Benjamin yet again when Benjamin is accused of stealing a cup from the royal household. And so the younger brother is stepping up to offer himself as a substitutionary atonement for the supposed sin of the first brother. Judah steps in as an intercessor on behalf of his brothers. And then when Jacob blesses his sons in Genesis 49, he says to Judah, you are a lion's whelp, a lion's cub, but the scepter will never leave your hand. Revelation calls Jesus a lion from the tribe of Judah. Judah has a son by the name of Perez. How did that come about? Well, Judah marries a Canaanite woman, and he has three sons by her. The oldest one marries a woman by the name of Tamar, and he's a wicked man, so God strikes him dead. And then the next brother marries Tamar, and God strikes him dead for not giving his seed to her. And now he's worried that this woman... Maybe he heard that eagle's song, Witchy Woman. Okay, I'm going to keep my guy away from her. She's bad news. Everyone who touches this woman dies. My last son is staying at home. He's staying at home. And so he withholds Tamar's ability to bear a seed in this line. But wanting to carry on the seed, Tamar feels robbed. So what does she do? Remember this story? Kids, I hope you're learning these stories in Sunday school or that you're going to. These are great stories to help you understand the anticipation to Christmas. Remember what Tamar does? She is so desperate to carry on the seed of this line. Two of her husbands have died. Her father-in-law is not giving her the last one, so she dresses up as a prostitute and seduces her old man father-in-law so that he will impregnate her, so that the seed will carry on. And later, when Judah discovers who he had slept with, he is deeply grieved. At first, he sees his daughter-in-law is pregnant. This is scandalous. Burn her with fire. She's obviously committed some kind of a sexual indiscretion, and he's angry, and he wants to burn her. And he says, who did this? And remember, he didn't have money to pay her at the time, so he gave her some personal goods in pledge until he could pay her money for her prostitution services. And he says, who did this? I want that guy's name. And she says, well, it was the man who gave me these personal goods. And he sees his own personal goods coming back to him. And he says, surely she is more righteous than me. I wanted to burn her with fire, and I'm the one who impregnated her. And when he gets these personal goods back, 
one of which is a scepter. Perhaps he remembers the haunting echo of Jacob's blessing on him that the scepter would never depart from his tribe. And in this sexual encounter, Tamar did get pregnant, and she bore some twins, Perez and Zerah. And when these twins are born, Zerah gets his hand out first. The midwife ties a red thread on it. Tamar comes first, and then he pulls his hand back in, and his brother is out fully first. And this is a struggle for the honor of the firstborn, similar to Jacob and Esau. And once again, it isn't the first son to carry out the promise as we might expect, but the second. And I think the theological significance of it always being the second son when we'd expect it to be the first son is the fact that we sang this morning that Christ is the second Adam. We expect the first brother to be the hero, and he always fails. It's the second Adam who is the deliverer. It's the second son, the one we don't expect to be the hero, who is the hero where the first one screws up. And the repeated failure of these older brothers to take hold of the expected promise is a reminder of just how broken everything has become. At Christmas, we remember the second Adam who was on his way to Bethlehem. And so all these younger brother stories are bringing this sharper and sharper into focus. And it's a remarkable story, too, by which the transfer of blessing moves from one of these twins to the other. And I won't go into great detail. You can read about it in Joshua chapter 7. Remember when Joshua was defeated at Ai? And he's grieved and he cries out, God, why did we get routed so badly? And God says there's sin in the camp. Take him out by tribes, you'll find who it is, and then kill him. And they stone this transgressor. And they cover him with a pile of rocks, and his family is cut off forever. And so the blessing goes all the way back up to the twins. Uh, After Achan, the powerful prince of the grandson of Zerah, it's the first twin uh, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist that is now cut off because of the sins of Achan. And he is stoned, he's covered with the heap of rocks, and his line is terminated. The scarlet thread has been cut off. But, despite that, Achan's distant cousin, Salmon, a descendant of Perez, the other twin, marries Rahab the prostitute. And we know that story. Rahab had given, over, uh, had given cover to Joseph and the spies when they come into the land, and they promise that they'll protect her and her family when they attack Jericho. And they tell her to hang a scarlet rope out of her window so that they know which house to spare. See how this works? The scarlet thread is cut off and then God grafts back in by another scarlet rope. And God is keeping his promise in the most unlikely way. He grafts in and he grafts out as he pleases and he tells an interesting story, this time involving red thread as he does it. Selman and Rahab have a son named Boaz, who's in this genealogy, and he becomes a kinsman redeemer for Ruth, a Moabitess. And the Moabites were people that came about because of Lot and his incestuous relationship with his daughters. Remember, Lot's daughters get him drunk, and then uh, they get pregnant by their own father, and those sons that result in that become the Ammonites and the Moabites. And so Ruth is a Moabitess. She's a former, former land, or a foreign land, uh, from an incestuous relationship. These are people, these are Gentile people who are frowned upon. And when the patriarch of this family dies, Ruth, a Moabitess, becomes widowed. She returns with her mother-in-law to Bethlehem, of all cities. And the narrative frequently refers to her as a Moabite, bringing uh, clearly into focus what a shameful and dirty 
outsider this woman is or would be seen as. And Boaz becomes the redeemer for Ruth and her family, and it's said that he covers her with the corner of his garment, a clear picture of the way Christ covers shameful people with his righteousness in the gospel. This Moabite woman has found a redeemer from the tribe of Judah in the town of Bethlehem. And although she is a Gentile, the book of Ruth records that there are expanded blessings that come about and that are going to go out to bless the nations from this arrangement. Boaz's redemption and marriage to this Gentile bride clearly pictures how the promised seed is on this ever-expanding, ever-progressing mission to send covenant blessings out to all the nations just as Abram was promised. Boaz kept the law and he actually exceeded the law and he is blessed greatly for it. And they eventually become the great-grandfather to David and eventually to Jesus Christ. Again, tracing the line of the seed that is to come. David comes as the great-grandson of Boaz and Ruth. He's a shepherd king from the tribe of Judah in Bethlehem, which is later known as the city of David. He is a warrior who fulfills his call as the seed of the woman as he crushes the head of Goliath, a seed of the serpent, complete with a description of Goliath's scaly armor. This man is clearly a snake. He's clearly a serpent. And David brings Goliath's head back to Jerusalem. And you've heard that before. He puts it on a place of a rock that gets named after Goliath of Gath. It gets the name Golgotha. To once and for all, for time and eternity, crush the serpent's head at this location. And if you know these stories, you know many of the stories, you know many of the men, you know many of the women. Matthew in his genealogy draws special attention to the four women, to Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And at Christmas, we put much focus on the Virgin Mary the very last woman to bear the promised seed. And this line of women starts with Eve, who has promised the seed and the curse. We always draw attention to the fact that it's weird that a woman is promised a seed when it's the man who contributes the seed. And I think that is God's way of getting a real man into the world without the curse of Adam being on him. There's no covenantal father-to-son succession, so he's really a man, but a man not under Adam. And so the virgin birth allows Jesus to be truly human. And in the absence of an earthly father, he is born without original sin. He's perfect. He is the seed of the woman in the true and final way that no other man has been, that none of these prior ones were. And the women in this family tree that take us from Eve to Mary are all links in the chain of being the woman's seed. All these women were not Israelites. The first one is Tamar, a woman who was left childless and acting as a prostitute. The second is Rahab, who was an actual prostitute. The third is Ruth, from a nation of prostitution. And the fourth is Bathsheba, whom David made into a prostitute. And of course, the final woman before Christ is a pure young virgin. And so the story of this seed shows us that the, father, the fathers of Jesus point, to us, point us to him over centuries of struggle. God working his sovereign purposes, grafting in, cutting out, moving in unexpected people to get us to his son coming to the city of David. But the story of the seed-bearing women is also the story of Christ's bride. That's us. We are a disgraced, scandalized woman. We are not pure, but God is turning us into a pure, beautiful, and virginal bride. And that is exemplified by Christ's own mother, Mary. 
And we also know all the stories of these barren women in the Bible that prolonged the wait, that made the agony last longer than we think it maybe needed to. There's so many women in the Bible who are unwanted or they're unloved even by their own husbands sometimes. We hear stories about women like Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel who are crying out to the Lord as they wait. And I think these women exemplify living, breathing examples of life under the curse. And the curse is all pervasive. It's like the description in Romans 8. These stories all remind us that creation is groaning. In Romans 8, 18 through 22, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Life in this fallen world, after our first parents fell, groans and creaks like an old wooden bridge that is carrying a load that is far, far too heavy for it. You can just hear it shifting and creaking and groaning, knowing it's not up to the task. And the groaning and the waiting and is frequently compared in the Bible to childbirth, to birth pangs, in which there is joy and vindication at the end of a long and painful struggle. There's 4,000 years between Eden and Bethlehem, and they're marked by suffering, death, judgment, loss, heartbreak, military setback, alienation, war, and promises that seem to never get here on time. Christmas is a time in which uh, we remember these women who are brought to weeping, either for the children that they did have or the children that they don't have, that they're unable to have. These women are crying. They're sad as they wait and wait and wait. And so today, on Christmas Eve, we're standing right at that precipice in history. The last day before Jesus comes into the world. And on Christmas Eve, on the first one, the groaning has given way to painful contractions. We are mere hours away from the second Adam coming into the world to reunite God and man, to knit back together heaven and earth. This is the better Abraham who fathers a new humanity by faith in God's promises. He is the better Isaac who lays down his life for real on the mountain outside of Jerusalem. This is the better Jacob who will prevail in his testing by God and who stands as the true son of Israel without any deceit or without any trickery in his mouth. The seed is the better Judah who is eternally holding the scepter of God as he rules from the right hand of the Father right now at this moment. He is the better Perez who grafts the most unlikely people, people that we don't expect, into his kingdom. And he is the better Boaz who covers the vulnerable and the ashamed bride with the robe of his righteousness. And he goes back to the city of his grandfather David to remind us that he is also going to progress from a shepherd into a king. God's people have been looking forward to this promised seed for a hundred generations by the time he arrives. And at Christmas, it is really true that the hopes and fears of all the years have come to their climax. The creation is indeed groaning under the curse of death. 
And the virgin has made it to the city of David. And as her body prepares for the night and she descends into the trauma of childbirth, all creation is sitting eerily quiet. And I couldn't help but picture that moment in Revelation where there's this worship service and there's angels and buzzing and humming and music and then it just stops. And the piercing silence forces everyone to just think about what's about to happen. All creation is sitting quiet. And it's not just Mary, but the entire cosmos are pregnant with anticipation. The God-man is hours away from entering into his creation. And the physical world is about to receive every blessing promised to her by her creator. And so it is fitting that we celebrate this as Christians And that it's not a somber, sad celebration, but that it's one marked by gifts and by food and by joy and by fellowship. This is truly a happy holiday. Truly a merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would give us a new appreciation for the way your people suffered and struggled and waited Lord, and that we would have a renewed appreciation for the women who wept because they could not have children or because the children they have caused them so much heartbreak. Lord, we also want to recall the way that you are merciful to these women and these men who act sinfully and who are shameful, and yet you are drawing a straight line to your son despite all the twists and turns so that when we think about are we there yet, it is just a few more corners. Lord, you are drawing uh, a line straight from Eden to Bethlehem, and you have intended it it to bless each one here. Lord, and I pray that we would uh, come to your Son in humble faith, that we would see that this is the promised seed. This is the God-man. This is the one who has come to put it all back to rights. Lord, and I pray that as we celebrate this at Christmas, as we celebrate the arrival of this long-awaited Messiah, that we would do it with gladness, with reverence, and that our joy in you would be contagious to all around us. Lord, you tell the best stories. And we thank you that you have seen fit to record them for us. Uh, that we know the anticipation and the joy that we should be feeling as we think about what it is that you sent your son to this earth. Lord, fill us with joy today and always. We thank you for your kindness to us. And amen. stand as we sing.
The Savior is almost here. So go home rejoicing and to rejoice. Enjoy food, gifts, and laughter with family and friends. And keep in mind what the Narnian lion Aslan once said. You do not look as happy as I intend you to be. All the joy that is to be found in baking, stocking suffers, and the laughter of old stories and all the festivity are all the first echoes of the rolling, thunderous joy which Christ, the Word made flesh, has ushered into this world. Now go forth to rejoice in the great love which God your Father has lavished upon you by sending His Son to be the Savior of the world, that you might dwell in Him and He in you. And then receive the benediction with believing hearts from Romans fifteen thirteen, which says, May the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope and go in peace.